before I forget to say something where I regard. All right, so we are still in this uh, this piece, this Indian from uh, from Rav Hutner, uh, and he was talking about the uh, the destruction of uh, of Amalek. Uh, why it is that uh, uh, Amalek? What uh, why uh, uh, Rashi refers to it, uh, or the pasuk in the Torah says Asher Karcha which in context means that they just happened to sort of like cross paths with us and decided to make a uh, a war. Where really what was going on was that since Klal Yisrael was uh, feared by the rest of the nations of the world, Amalek said this is intolerable as far as we are concerned for there to be a nation that has so much status and so much esteem. And therefore, we're going to go ahead and we're going to attack them. And, uh, you know, we may lose and they did lose. But nonetheless, it was already enough for them to go ahead and say, you know what, if I try a little bit harder, if another nation will think to themselves, if we try a little bit harder, if we have a better strategy, so we could likely go ahead and, uh, and succeed. So the idea that we ended off with was this, uh, this notion that the nature of uh, Amalek from the very beginning of their existence was to make fun or to belittle things which are around them. And uh, we saw that uh, that when Esav uh, sold the firstborn rights to Yaakov, so his response afterwards was, that Esav, uh, once it was no longer his, he decided he was going to go ahead and despise those firstborn rights, because once it's not something which has a shaykhus, it's something which doesn't have a connection to him anymore, so automatically he is going to belittle it, he's going to lower its status, and that's done by bizayu, and that's done by making fun of it. Okay, so now Rav Huttner says, where well, we resume now in Os Zion over here. So he says, going back to the beginning of this uh, this mimer, he says that's why the the uh, the pasuk says vacheriso ade ovad. That was one of the phrases that we started off with. That the et, oh sorry, did I share screen? I didn't share screen. Here I'm playing with the screen, and I didn't even share. There we go. So he says that vacherisa adeovad that the end result for uh, Amalek is going to be utter destruction. That there's no rectification, there's no repair for them whatsoever. And the idea is, is at the end of days, the period which we call acharis hayamim. So this is a day where everything is straightened out, everything is put back into the place where it uh, where it should be, and therefore everything which is repairable or everything which is fixable, so all of that will be repaired and fixed. But as he's going to explain, Amalek, by their very nature, they're not receptive to uh, constructive criticism. They're not receptive to any repair. And therefore, at the time when everything needs to be repaired, if they're not receptive to that, then they can't accept it. So then they have no choice but to sort of collapse upon themselves, to disintegrate into, uh, into nothing. So he says... That he explains it again, I think very beautifully. He says, that anytime there's any sort of rebuke, so as we would expect, like the words themselves imply, constructive criticism means I'm criticizing, I'm pointing out a flaw, I'm pointing out something wrong for the sake of construction, for the sake of repairing or fixing it or setting it straight. And being that all tochacha at its core is constructive criticism. Any flaw or defect, no matter how bad it is, but 
as long as there's no opposition to making that repair, there's nothing, there's no impediment or something getting in the way of being able to make that repair. So, so as a result of that, so everything is ultimately fixable. Everything can be repaired. You may not want to spend the money on it. You may, there's all sorts of reasons why somebody may not make the repair, but things by and large are repairable because they are receptive to making themselves better. But that has nothing to do with Amalek. Because what is the defect or what's the problem with the issue with Amalek? The issue with Amalek is the fact they are late sonim, that they are belittlers, they're scoffers. That the very essence of who they are is to repel or to push back against any sort of constructive criticism whatsoever. They're not, they are not receptive to that, me, me, that, uh, that message at all. And therefore, if they cannot hear that there's something which is wrong, that needs to be repaired, that needs to be fixed, so if you're not receptive to constructive criticism, so what are you going to be stuck with? You'll be stuck with all your flaws. <laughs> you're going to be stuck with all those bad things that you don't want because they cannot be repaired unless you're willing to hear that repair is necessary. And a Amalek, by their nature, since they are scoffers and they belittle everything and they don't want to hear what anybody else has to say, so that's why they're never going to be able to achieve that level of of tikkun, of rectification, of repair, because they're unwilling to hear that there's anything wrong with them. So it's that it's for that reason that in Achri Sayyamim, at the end of days, that they're not going to experience a tikkun like the rest of the nations of the world. The rest of the nations of the world, they may be doing all sorts of things wrong, but what they're doing, they're pretty sure that they are correct. And they're they're actually confident that they are correct. But ultimately, if it could ever be proven that they're wrong, so they would be receptive to that. And they say, okay, if it turns out that we're wrong, then we're wrong. What are we supposed to do? We thought you're supposed to worship the sun. And it turns out that we're actually, we're absolutely wrong. So then they'll go ahead and they will realign themselves with MS. They'll realign themselves with truth. But a Malik who's not receptive to that at all, they cannot be wrong. They have to be perfect. So the only repair for them is to not exist anymore. And now he says also a very beautiful idea related to this, like blown away by his creativity. He says, So we know that when Amalek attacked Kla Yisrael following Yitzhak Mitzrayim, so it says that Amalek came in battle with Kla Yisrael in the region called Rafidim. That's the Pashup Shat. That's the simple meaning of the Pasuk. But Chazal understand it to mean that what made Klai Yisrael uh, susceptible or vulnerable to an attack by Amalek, they weakened their grip on Torah. So they had a strong grasp on Torah at a certain point, and then when they weakened that grasp, so that's when they became vulnerable to, a, to Amalek's attack. Why is that so? So now Rundner points out, Anytime we want to talk about the opposite of somebody who is studying Torah, somebody who's dedicated to study Torah, onu omrim bittel Torah. So we always use the phrase bittel Torah. 
somebody's wasting their time. So we'll say, Bittal Torah, Bittal Torah, I can't get involved in such an activity. It's Bittal Torah, Bittal Torah. So we always talk about Bittal Torah. And here, all of a sudden, when it comes to this battle with Amalek, Chazal did not use the term Bittal Torah. We say that they weakened their grip. Rafu Yedehem. We find a new phrase which is being used only in this context, that there was a weakened grasp that they had of Torah. So what exactly are Chazal trying to share with us by using this, this phrase? So he says, But rather, the, the reason why Chazal introduced this phrase is for the exact reason which we have been developing. Rifion Yadayim, when we talk about a weakened grip, Perusha, what it means is, that if I'm holding on to something which is valuable, I'm going to hold it very tightly. Holding a child, a grandchild, I'm holding you know, my, my passport as I'm going through the, uh, the airport traveling uh, out of the country. So you hold that very strongly because you don't want to lose it. You don't want to lose track of it. And somebody else, uh, you know, then you're not going to be able to travel. It'll be all sorts of tsars. So we go ahead and things which are valuable, we grasp tightly. We weaken our grip on those things which are not so important. So if you're holding a $100 bill in your hand, you're going to hold it tightly. If you're holding a penny in your hand, so that you're going to hold much less tightly because who cares? It's a penny. If I lose it, uh, it's, not, it's not going to be such a big deal. Low big deal. Anyways, as they say in Israel. And therefore, So when a person loses or a person uh, in the person's own perspective, they no longer consider something to be valuable, something to be weighty, or something to be important. So he weakens his group. If you're holding a, a, a lottery ticket, which may be the winning lottery ticket, because they haven't pulled the winning ticket yet, you're going to hold it strongly, because maybe you'll be the winner of the $100,000. As soon as they pull the ticket and you realize it's not your number, and you didn't win the $100,000, so then the ticket's just going to fall out of your hands because why do I need to hold out it anymore? It's valueless at this point because I lost the lottery. So you weaken your grip at that point because it's not valuable. Therefore, he says, Therefore, it's specifically in this battle with Amalek, in our interactions with Amalek, because as we've explained, the whole idea behind Amalek is they take everything which is chashuv and they try and demean it, they try and belittle it, they try and lower it, they take away, they deny its importance. So at the exact moment that Klai Yisrael weakened their grip on Torah, that they not, no longer had such a strong grasp of Torah, that was the time that the nation, which represents belittling, in not holding things in esteem and having value for things, it's at that moment that we become vulnerable specifically to Amalek. And therefore, he says, Now we can understand more deeply the beautiful language, the golden language of Chazal, where they say that 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 they weakened their grasp, and it was the weakening of the grasp, which is indicative of the fact that Torah was no longer in the same esteem as we had initially. That's why it was at that moment that Amalek was able to go ahead and, and attack. And therefore, he says, this is the end of his, uh, his, uh, his idea. He says, So now remember that the, he, was giving, he was delivering this lecture, he was delivering this talk in the yeshiva, in Chaim Berlin. 
but he says that B'nai Torah, who, uh, who are involved in studying Torah, and the halachas about the perspectives and chovas levavos and obligations of the heart, tzrichim ladas, they have to know, ki mitzvah zechiras maise amalek, because when it comes to the mitzvah of remembering what Amalek did, we're going to have Parshas Zachor in not this Shabbos, but the Shabbos after that. So when we get to Parshas Zachor, so we have to realize, So we need to make sure that we are going to stand counter to what Klai Yisrael did to make themselves vulnerable to Amalek, which is when they weakened their grip or they lost their esteem for Torah. And therefore, the counterbalance to that, the way we fight Amalek, philosophically, is is we always need to go ahead and try and strengthen our grasp of Torah. And when we talk about strengthening our grasp of Torah, what exactly does that mean? Who the idea is, that when we need to be excited and inspired by the notion of studying Torah, and that needs to be something which is emanating from the heart. It needs to be uh, driven by the, by the heart, the excitement of the heart. And that all of that is going to emanate from, it's going to stem from, it's going to emerge from our recognition of the awesomeness of the chashivas of Torah, of the importance of Torah, as well as the great honor and respect which is due to that. So having proper kavara Torah, that puts us in a proper uh, mindset where we're going to feel more connected to Torah. And the more connected to Torah we feel, the more we tip the scales in our favor against Amalek. Because we only become susceptible to Amalek when we lose our esteem for the Torah. We, we don't have the proper chashivas for Torah. So we need to battle Amalek by raising the level of chashivas and the, the honor and the respect that we have for Torah. So this is his initial piece, the initial one in the Sefer about, uh, about uh, Pur. Okay, so Adkan, that one. Now... Uh, one moment, Rabbi. Yes. It's hard to believe that an entire nation, not even one, uh, would would doubt uh, what the rest of the nation is saying. There were always doubters in, in any big group. So even with the Malik, I would think that somebody would say, maybe that is right. Maybe that maybe you shouldn't score that. Maybe you should what? Should not make fun of that. Yeah, so yes. Um, Chazal often talk about the um, the perspective or the attitude of nations, and uh, like we talked about the on Shabbos when Hakadosh Baruch Hu was was trying to sell the Torah to the other nations of the world. So when he comes to Yishmael, nobody in Yishmael there's there's billions of Yishmaeli, so none of them were willing to say, you know what, let's give it a try, let's see what we can do. You know, all of them collectively said no. All of Esav said no, and that there was not one exception. So I think that by and large, when Chazal speak about these things, that the attitudes which are expressed are the, the feelings of the majority and not necessarily uh, uh, every last one. Okay, so now I'll stop that share. Okay, so that ends the first piece, the first piece which we we're going to do, uh, anticipating that we would go ahead and they were going to finish that piece 
I pulled out, I pulled together a second one of my favorite pieces from Rafutner on Purim. I figure since we're on Purim, we might as well uh, we might as well go for that. And here also, it's another piece which is very much Purim related, uh, and it's something which you know, I, I get blown away by his uh, by his creativity, his creative thought, and the ability to take different things which seemingly have no connection at all, bring them together to uh, to uh, develop a very a very deep idea. So here we have another. This is in Chafches, as you'll see at the top, Enyan Chafches. So he begins Rikudim Depurim. So he's going to give a talk. This is not a long piece. This uh, hopefully we'll finish it tonight. He says that this is now a talk about dancing on Purim. He's going to emphasize a special, unique dimension to dancing on Purim, which doesn't apply any other time during the year, and not even the other times that we dance, like on Simchas Torah. Okay, so now that's our task. So it says, Vayishlach, this is now Parshas Vayichi, Vayishlach Yisrael Asiyamino, Vayashas Arosh Ephraim Vuatzair. So we know that when it came time for Yaakov Avinu to give a bracha to Yosef's sons, uh, Ephraim and Menasha. So even though we put Ephraim first, Ephraim is actually the, the younger one. So Ephraim was put on Yaakov's left, because he was going to use his left hand to give the bracha to the younger one. And Menasha was put on Yaakov Avinu's right side, Menasha the older one, because usually the older one is going to get the stronger bracha, let's say. So the right hand was going to go to Menasha, and the left hand was going to go to uh, Ephraim. But it says that Yaakov crossed his hands, and he ended up putting his left hand, his weaker hand, on the older son, Menasha, and he put his right hand, his strong hand, on the younger son, Ephraim. He crossed his hands. Okay? That's what the Pasuk says. So we all know that story, that uh, Yaakov decided, for whatever reason, which we'll see in a moment, that he was going to go ahead and give the better bracha to the younger son, Ephraim. So now explains. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, this, uh, this thought, but he says the emphasis on the Pasuk over here is, Right? What would have been another way for Yaakov to go ahead and give the bracha, the stronger bracha to Ephraim? What he could have done was, he could have said to Yosef, he said, no, 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 switch the boys. I want Ephraim on my right side, and I want uh, Menashe on my left side. But he didn't have the boys switch their positions. Rather than having the boys move to the correct side, Yaakov Avinu decided that he was going to cross his arms. And he's going to put his right hand over there on, on Ephraim, even though Ephraim was on his left side. And he was going to use his left hand to give the bracha to Menashe, even though Menashe was on the right side. So what's the idea by this? You know, it says, He could have gone ahead and switched over Yaakov to be on his right side. And he could have gone ahead and taken Menashe, the older one, and put him on his left side. But he didn't do that. Yaakov decided that the best way to manage this situation is to cross his arms. Now that already is a curious thing. Why did he think that that's the best way to handle things? So what he's saying is, the Refutner uh, uh, is saying that there are two domains. There is the domain of Yaakov's hands, and there's the domain of Yaakov's feet. So on the foot level, uh, Ephraim, uh, sorry, Menashe remains on the right side, 
and Ephraim is on the left side, on the domain and the level of the hands, we switched it. He went ahead and put his left hand onto the older one, Menashe, and he put his right hand, the, the stronger hand, on Ephraim, the younger one. That on the foot level, though, so the Bechor remained on his right side, and the younger one was on his left side. And this now arouses, he says, waves in the heart. Again, he's, this is on Purim, and he was probably drinking at this point. But he says that this, is a, this generates a, a stream of thought for us to go ahead and consider. Because, So why did Yaakov want to go ahead and give the stronger bracha to Ephraim, the younger son, rather than Menashe? What was Yaakov Avinu's thinking to go ahead and switch things around? So Chazal tell us, because Ephraim is the great grandfather, let's say, but he is the he is the uh, he is a uh, um, a uh, the uh, great grandfather of Yoshua, who uh, he was an ancestor of Yoshua, and Yoshua Shahaya Harishon Lilachim Bamali, and Yoshua would be the first one to lead a war against Amalek. So since when doing battle with Amalek, one needs to be extra powerful, one needs to be extra strong, and the first one who was going to do battle against Amalek was Yoshua, who is a descendant of Ephraim. So therefore, Yaakov Avinu says, I need to use my strong, dominant hand to go ahead and give the bracha to Ephraim so that more of the strength of the bracha will go into Ephraim. And then he'll be able to pass that on in their DNA of their family till eventually it reaches Yoshua. And that will give Yoshua the necessary strength to be able to succeed in the battle against Amalek. Okay, give out. And the uh, Kas of Sham Haramban, and the Ramban writes over there, Shemasha Asa Yoshua Imam Barishona. He says the fact that Yoshua was the first one to do battle with Amalek, who and that's not the first time or the only time that Yosef's descendants are going to fight against Amalek. That's going to come up again uh, towards the end of days when Mashiach ben Yosef, not Mashiach ben David, but Mashiach ben Yosef is going to go ahead and do the final battle against Amalek. And he says, and this whole idea as to why Yaakov went ahead and crossed his hands, and he wanted to make sure that his right dominant hand would be on the head of Ephraim, was for the purpose of uh, empowering him so that that part of the family will be able to successfully battle against Amalek. And that's because Yaakov goes ahead and says, he uses a phrase, that the descendants of, of Ephraim are going to be full of nations, meaning powerful enough to, to battle them. Okay, now under normal conditions, I think uh, at this point he would go ahead and he would start a new paragraph. So right now what we know is, is we know that there's something which is curious, which is going on. Yaakov has an older grandson and a younger grandson. Normally the whole of things is you give the stronger bracha to the older one and the weaker bracha goes to the younger one. And over here, Yaakov decided he's going to go ahead and give the stronger bracha to the younger one, Ephraim. 
Now that by itself would already be curious, but as Rafutner pointed out, there's an even bigger curiosity over here. And that is they have the easier way to manage that situation were for him to go something along those lines. Say, no, 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 I want Ephraim on this side. I want Menashe on that side. And as a Zaidi, he could get away with, you know, pushing, putting them on the other side. And obviously everybody's going to listen to, uh, to Zaidi. But rather than have the boys move, he decides he's crossing over his hands. And as their footner point out, that means I'm, I'm at the level of his feet, uh, uh, Menashe is still on the Bechor side. Ephraim is on the non-Bechor side. But on the level of the hand, we're giving, we're treating Ephraim as if he's the Bechor, because he's getting the stronger bracha. And Menashe is getting the, as if he's the non-Bechor, getting the weaker bracha. Okay. So that is part one. Now he says in part two, Hine begufo shel Yaakov, so now again, this is where you get to see his amazing creativity. So we know that much earlier in life, Yaakov, as he was about to, after he left the house of Lavan, and he was returning home to go visit his, uh, his parents, go visit Yitzchak and Rivka. So the night before he's about to meet Esav, so he goes back to get the jars which he left behind, and he gets attacked by the Malach of Esav, Sarosh Esav. And the Torah says that this Malach of Esav was unable to defeat Yaakov. That's what happened. They were, morning arrived, and then the Malach says, sorry, I got to go. I got to go Davin. I got to go up to Shemaim. I got to go praise God. Can't stay, uh, can't stay around anymore. And that's because he could not defeat Yaakov as much as he tried. So, but what did he do? Verak eskaf yerecho hiziz mimkoma. We know that he struck Yaakov in the thigh and somehow dislodge Yaakov's hip. He needed a hip replacement after that. Happens sometimes, you get, to, get that, that age, and you may need to consider a hip replacement or something. So uh, Yaakov, by Yaakov, it didn't happen uh, as a result of old age. It happened because Saros Shal Esav, the Malach of Esav, went ahead, and that was the one place he was able to injure Yaakov Avinu. Now that's significant. Venimsa, so what does that tell us? Venimsa, the Beraglav Shal Yaakov, that specifically on the foot level, on the feet level of Yaakov, who Hamakum Shenikarbo Koho Shalamalik. Where is Amalek able to flex their muscles? Where are they able to express their power in a way which everybody will be able to see that they are strong and powerful? You can only see that if you look at Yaakov Avinu's legs. Because when Yaakov is walking around with a limp, so people say, hey, Yaakov, what happened? Did you fall? Why, why, why are you limping? He says, well, actually, I got into a fight with Esav's Malach, and although he wasn't able to defeat me entirely, he did give me a charley horse. He dislodged my lip. I need some hip replacement or something like that, and I need to go ahead and do it, and that's why I'm walking with a limp. So after that, every time you see Yaakov walking around with this limp, so that reminds you, oh, this is where Esav was able to go ahead and demonstrate power, exercise their power, an impact on Yaakov, on Klal Yisrael, specifically on the legs. That's the only place that, that Asa was able to injure Yaakov. So what that means is that Ephraim, remember Ephraim, who's the ancestor of Yoshua, who begins the first battle, has the first battle with Amalek, and that same family line, which will produce Mashiach ben Yosef, who will provide the ultimate defeat of Amalek. So we don't see Ephraim's strength. 
we don't see the advantage which Yaakov tried to convey to him with the bracha, we don't see that on the foot level. Because the whole point of giving Ephraim the, the bracha was that he should be able to be powerful enough to defeat Esav. And that only happens on arm level, but on foot level, we see the power of Amalek. Because that's where Yaakov was injured, that's where he needed his hip replacement. And it's rat biyad of shal Yaakov, the only place where we see the chashivas of, of, uh, of, uh, of the bracha, which Yaakov gave to Ephraim, the ancestor of Yeshua, we only see that at arm level. Because the battle with Amalek was using spears and swords and shields and stuff like that. So everything was happening that they were holding in their arms rather than something which is happening on the foot level. So the power of, uh, of Yoshua as a descent of Ephraim, that expresses itself in his arms, but in the legs, we're able to see the impact that the, the devastating impact in the injury, which Amalek was able to inflict on Klai Yisrael. So that's why we have these two different tiers. We have these two different levels which are going on in Yaakov's body. What's happening on his foot level, the relationship that Yaakov had physically on the leg level with Amalek, and on the arm level with Amalek. On arm level, Klai Yisrael is stronger. On foot level, Amalek was able to inflict an injury. And we say, Sham, over there, specifically by the hands, Hu Hamakom Ashalo That's where Esav, and that's where Amalek could have no power over us whatsoever. Because on our arm level, that's where we're going to be, uh, that's where we're going to be more powerful. V'lachain, and therefore, on the place where, uh, on the arm level, so that's why at arm level, Yaakov took his right hand and he made sure that his right hand is going to be on Ephraim's head in order to convey the, the, the power that needs to be conveyed from on arm level to be able to defeat uh, Amalek, that had to go towards Ephraim because Ephraim is the ancestor of Yeshua who's going to be able to do that battle. And that's why it says, Shikel es Yadav. That's why the Pasuk says that Yaakov, rather than moving the boys, moving his grandsons, he went ahead and crossed his arms. That's the significance of crossing his arms. Yadav davka vidok. That is specifically his hands, and he didn't move the location of where the boys were standing on his foot level. Okay? So now that is the end of part two. So the end of part two over here, we see this idea, this amazing idea that Yaakov's body could be divided into two halves. The upper half of his body where his hands are, that's where we see the strength of Yaakov. And that's the bracha that he wanted to give to Ephraim so that Ephraim's descendant, Yoshua, would be able to successfully battle Amalek. But on the foot level, so that's where you could see the power of Amalek, or you see the power of Esav, because that's where he was able to injure Yaakov and dis- dislodge his hip, to uh, dislocate his, his, uh, his hip, so that he would not be able to go ahead and be able to uh, walk without a limp. Now, Ella, so that's true. However, Ella, Shekolzeh Hurak Ad Vayavo Yaakov Shalim. If you go on in those tzokim, so what you see is that eventually we reach the point where Yaakov reaches a point where he's able to return. The Pasuk says shalem. Shalem means whole and intact. Nothing, there was no injury anymore. All of the wounds had healed. The uh, the replacement hip 
went ahead and uh, it took properly. He did all the necessary PT afterwards and is able to walk now without the, without an issue. Shalim bigufo, meaning that his body was also intact. Shenirpe mitzalosa, that his hip, the part which had become dislodged, so that was now put back into place. And now Yaakov was able to walk without a limp. The Oz, and at that point, once Yaakov is now healed, fully healed, so then it's no longer necessary to cross his hands because now he's going to be more dominant, not only on the arm level that he wants to give the right hand to Ephraim, but now he can move Ephraim even to his right leg. He'd be able to ultimately do because even that once he heals, so now we no longer see the impact, the, uh, the damaging, injurious impact which Amalek had against us. Because it's at that point that you see that there's going to be a full expression of this idea that the power which Yaakov wanted to go, which Yaakov intended to go ahead and give over, so now he's going to be able to go ahead and do that even on the leg level, and that is where we see that Yaakov is now going to be intact, fully healed from his injury. Now what's interesting about this Again, this is what happens when you do two different things at the same time, uh, which are not, you know, run, run, right one right after the other in the safer. Is that remember we we saw in the earlier piece today in Inyan Aleph we saw that there was a unique phrase, which Chazal used in reference to Klai Yisrael's attitude towards Torah, which led to Amalek's attack, and that was Rifyon Yadayim, that they had weakened their grasp on Torah. And Rafutna was wondering why we go ahead and we use that. So now we, we can understand that idea why Klai Yisrael became, became vulnerable when they weakened their grip even more so in light of the peace which we're doing now, the Indian which we're doing right now. Because remember, we're saying now that Yaakov is divided into two levels. There's hand level and there's foot level. At hand level, that's where we have the power to actually defeat Esav and Amalek. And that's why Yaakov Avinu made a conscious choice to move his right hand over to Ephraim because he wanted to give all of that power. So the whole purpose of crossing his hand and putting his right hand on Ephraim was to give him extra strength so that his descendant Yoshua will be able to do battle. But all he has to do, where does that strength derive from? All of that strength derives from the grasp that we have on Torah. That's where, every, that's where everything comes from. And if Klai Yisrael goes out and takes their greatest strength, which is where Yaakov crossed his arms, and we don't go ahead and use that properly, so then that weakness makes us vulnerable to Esav, even on arm level. Not only on, uh, on, uh, on leg level, but even on arm level. And that is the great uh, risk that we have. And now he goes, he mentioned something from one of, uh, one of the students there, which we're not going to do. But now he says, again, this is a, I think it's a beautiful idea. He says, "Vizui hamuchedes So he says that this now represents a unique dimension or a unique perspective or a unique uh, appreciation that we can have for the dancing that we do on Purim. What makes the dancing on Purim different than dancing we do the whole year round? Harakurim de Purim, because when we dance on Purim, heim besod psikas hatzliach halayerch shal Yaakov Avinu. Remember, 
where on the body was it was the malach of Esav able to injure us? On the hip, on the leg. And as a result of that injury, so we walk around with a limp. So somebody who's walking around with a limp is not going to be dancing very much because it hurts too much. You don't want to dance in the event that you have an injured hip because you're going to just keep aggravating it. It's going to cause you more and more pain. So when we dance on Purim, what we have to have in mind is the dancing that we're doing is a celebration of the fact that we have now healed from the injury which Amalek was able to inflict on us. And the reason why we have healed is because Purim represents an Olam Haba It represents our connection of this future era, this Acharis Sayamim, when Amalek is fully defeated, it no longer exists. And when we reach that point where Amalek is fully uh, defeated and no longer exists. So that's when Yaakov and Klai Yisrael collectively will be healed. And at that moment that we're healed, then we're able to dance once again. So the, the dancing which we do on Purim represents the fact that we see ourselves in that Acharis Hayamim moment when we're fully healed. And therefore, our celebration, the greatest celebration we could have to express the fact that we finally defeated, uh, defeated Esau and defeated Amalek is to dance. And that's a very different type of dance. It's a very different kavana than dancing that we would have on Simchas Torah or something like that, or on a regular Shabbos. But it's something which is unique because how Rokade because somebody who is going to be dancing does not have a dislocated hip. That's just by its very nature, it's not going to, it's not going to work that way. And therefore, recruiting to Purim, that's why dancing on Purim is something which has a very special place in Jewish thought, because it's specifically that dancing, which means we're no longer suffering from the injury, which Saro Shalesa was able to inflict on Yaakov Avinu and on Klai Yisrael. And therefore, our expression of that victory, of the joy of that victory, is to be able to dance fully and, uh, and to celebrate that, uh, that we are healed. So that is his the second piece that we have from uh, from Rafutner about the Purim. So okay, so we will uh, we will hold it here for uh, for tonight, a couple of minutes early, but a couple, of, and we'll see next week in Ritz Hashem what exactly we will um, whether we'll go on with Purim. Maybe we'll start to, to think about Pesach a little bit. We'll have to see. We have one more week until Purim, and then it's Purim itself, and then the next week will already be post Purim pre Pesach. Not that I'm trying to scare anybody about Pesach, but it is coming. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.